The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. I have waited for this moment for a long time. I appreciate the fact that the first note we sang is, Do you feel the world is broken while we're singing with a mask on? It just it felt appropriate. It is a joy to be together, even to look and see a masquerade of masks out here. I can, I can tell who many of you are and been looking forward to seeing you. It is part of the joy of the people of God to gather in God's name and celebrate all that He's done for us. So I am rejoicing. As God's people, we are rejoicing with joy, inexpressible, full of glory, and no mask is going to take that from us. And at the same time, we have this wave of joy crashing over us to be together and to not have to stare at a camera for me, but at the same point, there's a a wave of sorrow that crashes on us because when we say we, we remember that not all of us are here. So I do look into the camera. We haven't forgotten about those of you who can't be here. We love to see the people we can see. We remember there are people that we don't see right now. And you're, you're watching and you're part of this and the truth of this text that I'm going to read in a moment is that whether we're here gathered or whether we're at home watching, there is something that is true of us, that we are God's people, that He has chosen us for His own to declare His praise. So COVID-19 can cancel many things, but it can't keep us from doing the main thing we're made for, which is to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's true. True whether you're here in the church building, true whether you're at home, if you are in Christ. And that transcends all of the sorrow that we feel right now at those who can't be with us. So we hope that in this moment you're with us worshiping, celebrating that the things that are true are greater than the things that are sad. So let me read this text, and then we'll pray. But you, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together. So, Father, now for those who are here, gathered physically, for those who are at home or wherever they are, watching electronically, we thank you that we are a people, not of merit, 
but of mercy. We're thankful, oh God, that in this moment, we get to be reminded of all that you have made us, all that you've made us to be, all that you've made us to say, and I pray, oh God, that, that you would have a supernatural grace now given to understand it, to celebrate it, to savor all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what this text is all about. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10 tells us this. It tells us first our identity as God's people. See that in the first part of verse 9. Four images, four titles, four pieces of our identity. And then in the second half of verse 9, you see our purpose. Not just our identity, what has God made us, but our purpose, what has God made us for. And then in verse 10, we get to be reminded again of our past and our present. That we're not a people of merit, but a people of mercy. So we're going to see it together, we're going to build up to the main point, and then we're going to apply it because this has a lot to say to us today. So first look at our identity found in verse 9. These four images that Peter paints that are all borrowed colors and concepts from the Old Testament. You guessed it, Isaiah, again, has something to say about this, but also Exodus. Peter brings these two texts, Isaiah 43 and Exodus 19, together to remind us who God's people are. So we're going to look at these four pieces of our identity, starting with you are a chosen race. This comes directly from Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21. God says through Isaiah that he's going to give drink to my chosen people. That phrase, chosen people, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that Peter is quoting from is identical. Where Peter says, you are a chosen race, Isaiah 43, 20 says, my chosen race. So what we're seeing here is that this word race describes a people. In Isaiah 43, it describes a people who are connected with a common lineage, a common ancestry, namely the lineage of Abraham. That's what the word genos here, we get our word genealogy from it, this is what it means to be a people held in common together in solidarity through a shared lineage. And here in Isaiah 43, that common lineage is their people descended from Abraham. And yet, he says more. He says that this people that were, have a, a solidarity, this lineage with Abraham, they also shared a common deliverance. Part of their story was that they were a people that were in Egypt, enslaved, and that God delivered them through an exodus, and now he delivered them from that exile. So they're a people with a common lineage and a common deliverance. But now in Isaiah 43, God is saying to them, he's going to do a new thing. Just like there was an exodus from Egypt, there's going to be now for God's people in exile, in Babylon, there's gonna be a new work. 
a new exodus, a new work of deliverance, something new that is going to define them as a people. Now, how is it that Peter can look at this text, talking about the the nation of Israel that's going to experience this from Babylon, how can he apply it to the church composed of Jew and Gentile? That is, how can they be the chosen race together, Jew and Gentile, if they don't share the same ancestry from Ancestry.com? How is it that he can use this title for the church of Jew and Gentile? The answer is that this text, Isaiah 43, is talking about this prophetic picture of a greater deliverance that God is going to do. Just like there was a second exodus deliverance of God for God's people, there's now a greater deliverance from the greatest of all possible rulers, Jesus, not Cyrus, that comes and delivers the people of God so that now they are defined by a common lineage to our older brother to the one who set us free. We now have the same story and the same lineage, not that we're on the same family tree at Ancestry.com. We're part of the same family of faith. That's how he can apply this because we have been delivered in the greatest possible way from sin and Satan and death from the greatest possible ruler, Jesus Christ, to be a people that are joined together by something stronger than anything that has ever happened in the universe. There now is not just Jew and non-Jew, that historical hostility that divided people for centuries, there's now another option. Not just Jew or non-Jew, but a third race called Christians. Those who are God's people. Shared lineage in the genealogy of Jesus. Shared story of salvation. My chosen race, deliverance from darkness to light, from death to life, from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of God's Son, from damnation to salvation. So as we look at then what does chosen race mean, what it means is that we have to say not only that we are this new race, we have to ask why. How did we become that? Did we somehow, like, like good spiritual stockbrokers, figure this out where the rest of the world didn't? Like, we're going to put all of our chips on Jesus because we are smart enough, wise enough to know that he can save. So in other words, is humanity divided into two groups? Those who were spiritually wise enough to choose Jesus and those who were too foolish to choose him? In other words, are we a people of merit? That somehow the difference between us and non-Christians is that we were smarter, wiser, stronger. What? He says, chosen. You're my chosen race. Put this in context with the previous verse where he says they, that is non-Christians, stumble 
because they disobey the word, the message, which is what they were appointed to, appointed to that destruction. Meaning, what is the difference between Christian and non-Christian? God, both of us, foolish, dead in our sins, blinded in darkness. God gave over some to their darkness. And God intervened with others saying, let there be light from darkness into light. What this means is that you can't claim any praise, any credit for being part of this new race. God did it. Why? He chose you. He chose you. He said before the foundation of the world, I want you in my family. Do you see what this does? You can't be full of yourself if you're full of God, full of praise for what he's done. If there's no reason that you bring that says, I am a believer because I, this is saying, you're a new race because God chose. That will simply destroy pride and purify our praise. There's so much more I want to say about that. We've got to move on to the next title. So not only are we a chosen race, also Exodus 19 is now the, 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 where all the rest are coming from. We are a royal priesthood. Let's read Exodus 19 so you can see where these remaining pictures are coming from. Royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's possession. At Sinai, Exodus 19, Moses goes up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain saying, you shall say this to the house of Jacob. Tell the people of Israel. Here it is, Exodus 19, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Did they merit any of that? No way. God's saying, you saw what I did. I did this. I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that is the old covenant here, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he's now saying, Peter's saying, what was true for God's people in the old covenant is even more true for us as believers. What does it mean then to be a royal priesthood? Remember, the idea of a priest has to do with relationship. You have this relationship, this special relationship with God, and therefore you could mediate between others and God. So if an Israelite brought a sacrifice, that that priest could receive that, give it in God's name, and God would receive the sacrifice through the priest of that person, and therefore they would be connected. Now this is saying 
that's us. We're a royal priesthood, meaning we are representing royalty. God, the highest possible representation we could give, we are priests of the king, kingdom of priests. Now, what does that mean then for us? Well, for Israel, remember, it wasn't just that there were individual people called priests in the tribe of Levi that would receive sacrifices. The whole nation of Israel, he's saying, is meant to be a priesthood, meaning you are meant to be the people of God, being holy as God is holy, and therefore representing him to the rest of the nations of the world. Having a special relationship with God in which you could tell the world about him and his plan to bless the nations through Abraham. Yet, Israel failed, how? They failed to be that holy people of God and became disobedient like the rest of the nations and they were judged like the rest of the nations. So you can see now, the church is a missionary people an evangelistic people that really know God, that the sacrifice has been given. Jesus has offered it that brings us to God and therefore now as a royal priesthood, we get to tell the world this is the sacrifice that brought us who were far from God, without hope, without God in the world, brought us to God and it's the same sacrifice that can bring you to God from darkness to light. We get to declare that. We get to embody that. That's what it means for us to be a royal priesthood. And as Peter said in verses four and five, we get to be the the spiritual house and the spiritual priest making spiritual sacrifices. So suddenly everything that we do becomes a representation of who we know God to be, of what he's done. Now, the third image he gives here is the holy nation. Let's remember something about Israel's national identity. When did Israel become not just the people of Israel but the nation of Israel? It happened in Exodus 19 to 24, Exodus 19, you're gonna be the nation now of Israel, my people, kingdom of priests, holy nation. Now you're gonna be that. How was that enacted? Exodus 24, you remember, the sprinkling of the blood upon the people. All that God says we will do. And then the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the people. That was in Exodus, in the Old Covenant, Exodus 24 was there July 4th. When is ours as a church? When did the church become holy nation? It was in what was symbolized in communion when Jesus took bread and the cup and said, this is the covenant poured out for the sins of many. What we're gonna celebrate at the end of this service is so appropriate because we're celebrating our July 4th. 
when the church became the holy nation through the sacrifice, not of blood and uh, the blood of bulls and goats, but of the everlasting Son. That's why all the songs we were singing are not patriotic about America, but about Jesus and what he's done, how he has purchased a people, a holy nation. And lastly, he says, a people for his possession. This is simply magnificent. Notice there's a subtle shift in grammar here. He said you're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. Now he says a people, but he adds something for his possession. This prepositional phrase, you are a people for something. For, he says, possession. Here's why this is so magnificent. He's taken the images of Exodus 19 and Isaiah 43 and just gloriously smashed them together so you can see we're both. In Exodus 19, he started by saying, you are my treasured possession because all the earth is mine, but you're my treasured possession among all the nations. Meaning, this word in Hebrew is a king would have a a royal treasure, and in that treasure he would have certain objects that were his treasured possession of all the treasure. And God is saying, everything's mine. Uh, the, The treasure, the treasury of God is everything. But he says, I've got special objects of ownership, and it's my people. They're my treasured possession of all that I own. So notice, when you think of God, you think of Jesus as Lord, Master, we typically think in terms of ownership. We know what it means, therefore he's saying, you're you're possessed, I possess you. Do you know that that also means treasured? Not just that you are his possession, but that you are his treasure. Do you really think that he looked through the corridors of time and said, I want you in my family? And he's somehow indifferent to you? What this is saying in the strongest possible way is that God chose you to treasure you. We sing about it, I wonder if we believe it. Those he saves are his delight. We talk at Bethlehem a lot about how we should delight in God. Do you know that God delights in you? Treasured possession, it seems too good to be true. Oh, it is too true to not believe because God says it, and we can't call him a liar. And then he takes that image from Exodus 19, and then he uses the language of Isaiah 43 to say possession. Let me read Isaiah 43, 20 and 21 again. Here's Israel compared in Babylon to a people in drought. No rain, and they can't make it rain. And he says God's gonna do it. He's gonna pour out water 
on his chosen people, give drink to them, the people who I formed for myself. That verb, formed for myself, is the same verbal form of this noun that Peter uses, possession. Formed for myself is the same word used, possession. I chose you to treasure you, to love you, so that you would belong to me forever. And here's the good news. If you didn't do anything to earn that, you can't do anything to unearn that. God who began the good work will complete it because it's his work. And guess what happens right after that in Isaiah 43? I'm convinced Peter's just following it because he says, starts, you're the chosen race, you're the people for his possession, for what? Isaiah 43, 21, that they might declare my praise. You see, Peter's just following along with Isaiah 43. He did all of this, made you a chosen race, royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That's our identity. Why? What's our purpose? The rest of verse 9 that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, this is the point of the passage. Why did God give you this identity, make you this way, form you for himself? Answer, that you would praise him, that you would spend eternity Not just someday in heaven, every moment of your life you exist as God's children to proclaim what God has done to make you that. That you're not a people of merit, but a people of mercy. And when he says, proclaim the excellencies of him, let's ask the question. Let's tighten the screw a little bit in terms of what our purpose is. When he says proclaim, Is he talking about worship, like we proclaim his excellence when we sing together as those who know him? Or is he talking about evangelism? Is he talking about we make the excellencies of him known to those who don't know him? Or is he talking about not just our lips, but our lives as well, that we declare with our very lives, blood-bought lives, what God has done? And the answer is yes. You you can't just say it's this, not this, not this. It is, Peter says, our entire vocation now, our purpose to declare what God has done. And notice he says, you're highlighting his excellencies. The excellencies of him who did this. What that means is when we sing, and when we evangelize, and when we live, we're not just saying to each other and to the world, salvation is such a good deal. What a good deal. We're saying not what a good deal. What a great God. 
who has done this for us. What kind of character does this reveal that he would be so merciful to people who were so undeserving? We're highlighting his excellencies. When the Roman citizen was supposed to be a person that knew what to say, hail Caesar. The Christian knows exactly why we were saved to say, hail King Jesus. All hail King Jesus. Look what he has done. Look what kind of God he is. There is no indifference with this word excellencies. In other words, it's not mainly informational. That would stress the accuracy of a statement, not the excellency of it. So here's an informational statement. Let's say that I'm coming to you and I'm saying, hey, just want you all to know we ran out of hand sanitizer. That would be informational and hopefully helpful. But if I came to you and said, hey, just want you all to know Jesus saves. If I'm saying that, living that, sharing that, the same way I'm talking about no more hand sanitizer, I don't really understand my salvation. There is a taste of this excellency It shows up in the very word that we have been called out of darkness, not just into light. What does he say? He's got to have an adjective to it. Marvelous light. Meaning there's no way that you can be indifferent to this. Just test this out, okay? Have you ever been to a restaurant or had somebody make something for you that was like the best meal you've ever had? I challenge you to have the best thing that you've ever eaten and be indifferent to it. I mean, I mean to have no expression, to have no response, to have no sign at all about how good it was, how excellent it was. If, if that's you, then you've got problems because we're made for this. We're made to savor and therefore then share what we're savoring. Like I'm imagining like when I have had the most devastating things ever to eat, I can't keep myself quiet. I'm like, whoa, mm, and the first thing you want to do is, isn't this good? Isn't this excellent? I'm, I'm thinking like it's a what about Bob moment. You know that movie where he's eating with them and he's like, mmm, mmm, mmm. They're like looking at him like you surely can't be enjoying this meal that much. The world should look at believers and our response to all that God has done, and it should be that sense of savoring and delight, meaning if it's marvelous light, we can't be indifferent to it. Part of our saving faith is delight in the light. When you have moved from the coldness and deadness and aloneness of being in darkness. There's a reason solitary confinement in the dark is torture. And you have been moved from that without God, without hope, into dazzling, radiant warmth of light. You're not meant to keep that quiet. You're not meant to pretend That's not the most stupendous thing that has ever happened to you or could ever happen to you or will ever happen to you in your life. A Christian is the kind of person who has to share his delight in God. 
in what God has done. Make that known, whether lips or lives or attitudes or whatever it is, we are representing as royal priests our royal king. Look what the king has done. Look what kind of king this is that would do this for someone that deserves it so little. We are, in other words, a worshiper. God chose us to be a people of praise, to be a people of pure praise, not taking any credit for it, but with a delight sharing what God has done and what kind of God he is. Now, Peter's not done wanting to show us what this means because he didn't just say, notice this, he didn't just say he brought us from darkness to light. He doesn't say he just moved us, picked us up and moved us from darkness to light. He says he called us from darkness to light. That word is incredibly rich in the New Testament. It's not just some outward call, like informational call, hey, everybody want you to know. It is this inward, effectual, new creation call that God gives on the inside that totally changes us. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says you were blinded, you couldn't see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ, but God did something with that deadness and blindness and darkness. The God who in Genesis 1 in the creation said, let there be light in the new creation has done that on the inside of you. So that now suddenly you're not just in light in some location, you are light. You have been totally changed from the inside out and it's not just this marvelous light on the outside, it's bursting from the inside, radiating out to the outside. God has done the call. This is the new creation call that God has given and just so you won't take credit for it, Peter's not done. He wants to compare, thirdly, our past and our present by quoting from Hosea 2. Read verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is Hosea 2.23. Let me just summarize it quickly for the sake of time. When you read Hosea, and you read this marital metaphor of a wife who was so unfaithful, rebellious, what Peter is saying is that's us. That's who you were. So far from being a story of merit, you're a story of demerit, of not possibly deserving any of this. And it is unsettling and shocking that what God should do is shun, and instead he receives. He says, because you've done that, I'm going to give you mercy. I'm gonna make you my own. Have you ever had somebody treat you that way? Where everything in you feels like, this is what I deserve right now. 
and for somebody to show you kindness when you least deserve it, it feels so unsettling. And yet, this is what this text is saying. You're not a people of merit. You did, you were a people who are so undeserving, you couldn't be more undeserving. And it makes the mercy shine more and it means that you should savor your salvation more. It means remove the poison of pride and being full of yourself as a believer and now be a person of pure praise. My identity is that I'm not a person of merit. We are a people of mercy. And I will tell you, I used to believe the opposite. When I was an Arminian, I think we all grow up inborn Arminians, I really struggled with this. I used to think the difference between me and my family members, not a believer, is it ha- I guess it has to be me. I guess it's because I chose. I guess it's because I was, I don't know, more spiritually sensitive or wiser or whatever. I don't know. It was this moment, and it was even this text, Paul quoting it in Romans 9 for me, when I realized that the difference between me and a non-believer was God's mercy choosing me? God broke out of the box that I had put him in, and I feel like really and truly that was the moment of my first purest moment of worship, like I had never worshiped before. When you can take zero credit, it means God gets all the glory. Now, here's how I wanna apply it in about five minutes. What does this mean for us today? If this is the kind of people we are, if this is our identity, if this is our purpose, did you know, I was reading in a commentary about the early church, what was their experience in the Roman Empire, which is where Peter's talking about? The Roman Empire, the people, like the Roman writer Suetonius said this, said Christians are this there's this new class, using the same word, genos, a new race. And the people in the Roman Empire viewed them as almost antisocial because it says they, they stopped doing what everyone else was doing, like in the gladiatorial events and, and all of the, the immorality and the flood of what was happening. It said they, they pulled themselves away from that. And they claimed to be this, this new class, this new race. And guess what happened? The world persecuted them because of it. And aren't we seeing this in our day? That the church in First Peter is supposed to be these, these citizens of heaven living as exiles on earth and the world is persecuting them and they're having to band together closer than ever as new race, new nation, new priesthood. And the world is trying to pull them apart And the early church said, you can't do it because the one who brought us together is greater than anything that could tear us apart. Just take the word race. How could we see this biblical word and not talk about racism and what that means? 
Did you know that in our nation's history, race is a social construct? It's an invention. In other words, you take ethnicity, which means like you're, you're Dutch or you're Swedish or you're whatever. That's ethnicity. That's talking about different cultures. Race is a social construct. You can read all about this in our nation's history. It's just fact that they took race and they decided to use it as a construct of power to justify slavery. So that now you have all these different ethnicities lumped together physiologically with a false unity called white in order to oppress a group of different ethnicities that they brought together and called black, which means that was a false unity and it led to a false division. Imagine if the church in America in that day said, you can't take our word race. You can't take that word. We know what it means. We are chosen race. That means we're not going to let you do that. We're not going to let you falsely unify this race, these physiological differences and these physiological differences, and then use it as a category of oppression. We're not going to let you because chosen race means no longer Jew or non-Jew, but Christian, and therefore we are united by Christ, not in the service of oppression, he became a slave so that he could save us from eternal suffering. Where was the church to say, no, that's not what we're going to go for because we're not going to let you co-opt God's vocabulary in American vocabulary and change it. We are this new nation, this new chosen race. And we have to live with that sad history And so the people who say, let's just ignore it and not talk about it. It's divisive if we talk about it. No, no, no. It was divisive to do it. And if we simply pretend it never happened, we're not addressing the false unity that it was. We get to be the place that talks about this reconciliation that God has actually accomplished in the church where it's not Hispanic American, European American, African American, Asian American, it's Hispanic, European, African, Asian, Christian. We get to be a place that says, no, this is is the way God would do it. And we get to apply that throughout the church and say, this is God's way. What we're going to do as we close now, is just commit to be that people where we don't let political polarization pull us apart, we don't let racial polarization pull us apart, we don't let economic polarization pull us apart and say male, female, Jew, Gentile, African American, Asian American, European American, Democrat, Republican, we get to say Christian. That ties us together tighter than anything could be strong enough to tear us apart. And we celebrate as this new nation our July 4th, which is our communion, the Lord's Supper. Let me pray as we prepare. Father, God, I ask in this moment 
that you would help us take all of the things that could divide us and now as a new nation, as a new race, as a royal priesthood, as a people that belong to you, let us celebrate together what truly unites us forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.